This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to the show Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa from the 1st Hampshire District. Representative, thank you so much for being with us this morning. I know that our listeners would like to hear an update, if you could give us one, on where things stand with regard to the bus arriving with immigrants or no bus arriving with immigrants, what you can tell us, what you know. And I remind our listeners who are are with us for the 5 o'clock rebroadcast of the show that we are hearing this information a little bit after 9 o'clock on Friday morning. Representative Sabadosa, what can you tell us? Bill, and and good morning. It's nice to be here with you. Um, So for for those listeners who might not know what the question is referring to, um, I think on the news yesterday it was pretty well covered that – a governor from either Texas or Florida. We, we hear the governor of Florida taking a lot of credit, um, but we do know that uh, the migrants originated in Texas. Uh, sent two planes to Martha's Vineyard uh, with about 50 migrants. Um, the island has been working to to accommodate those migrants and to, to figure out how to make sure that, um, that they're taken care of, that they have places to stay, that they're fed, and that we can make sure that um, all of their legal and medical needs are taken care of. And in the in the whirlwind of news around that arrival on Martha's Vineyard, which was very unannounced, uh, the city of Northampton and the town of Amherst received two calls yesterday morning um, from someone purporting to be from the office of Governor Abbott saying that buses would be arriving in our community. Um, so we have been unable to verify the veracity of those reports. We certainly know that buses have left Texas. Um, and probably other states, we know Arizona and possibly Florida. We do not know if they are actually destined to come to Northampton and and Amherst. Amherst received that same call. So, um, you know, we we think because there's no guarantee, you know, the city and and the the town of Amherst did work together to, to set up a plan in the eventuality of an arrival, but we have no confirmed news that there are buses so, um, if this is a hoax, it's, it's an unfortunate um, it's an unfortunate one. And but it did lead to, to the city actually creating a plan. So that is a very good thing. And the community came together in really beautiful ways to figure out what happens if you know we were to wake up like they did on the vineyard and find all of a sudden uh, busloads of people arriving. Why would anyone from Governor Abbott's office or uh, in his circle? call the communities where the buses would arrive. The planes just arrived in Martha's Vineyard. There was no advance notice. It seems to be, given the nefarious nature of this uh, transportation of people, many of whom appear to be not even to know where they were going, uh, uh, a political move, uh, something that is inhumane, I think. Uh, why Why would he give us notice? I, I'm opining here. I, I don't know for sure, but I certainly don't believe that the call really came from the governor's office um, because that has not been the, the MO of the governor. Buses have just arrived. There has been no notice. Uh, in Martha's Vineyard in particular, I, I do think they were given about a 20-minute heads up, but the media was informed first. So, Bill, you might actually, uh, and the radio station might know before anyone else does if, if there were buses arriving, but I don't think we've seen any instance in which the governor's office has reached out. And in fact, many calls were made to Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis's office yesterday. We were able to confirm that the name that we were given was not uh, an actual person who works there, but uh, we do want to be prepared. And I, I think that is the moral of the story. Communities do need to have a plan in place. Um, it is effectively very similar to an emergency response. So it is good to know who all the people that you would call on, should this happen, who they are, what they can do, what they can offer. So it was a good exercise for the community, and and we will see what happens. I I think we can say for sure that more migrants will be sent uh, to to northern states, to blue states, as I I see Governor Santos calling us over and over, red states sending people to blue states. Um, but this is very much, I think, a political ploy and, and probably part of his uh, 2024 presidential campaign. The question of migrants on the southern border is a uh, 
is a difficult question. There are, in fact, many people there uh, waiting for hearings in immigration court that will not happen anytime soon. I'm wondering if we have heard anything in Massachusetts from the federal government with regard to any change in policy or not uh, with regard to what is occurring with regard to uh, persons seeking asylum on the southern border. So I have not heard any change in in recent days, and I think we all know that Congress uh, has a hard time passing anything that is slightly controversial, and certainly the way that some states might view immigration compared to others is starkly different, and that does make it more difficult for these types of overarching policy that does need to pass to actually pass. So we haven't heard any policy changes. We have, of course, been in very close contact with federal delegation. You have seen all three levels of government working together very closely to try to address the issue of of migrants arriving and what that would mean and what the state would need and the financial resources required. But we have not heard policy change. Um, And I think there are still a lot of unanswered questions as well. I, I, you know, read many newspapers when I wake up in the morning, and I think a lot of attorneys are pondering whether the governor's actions are are even legal. And certainly from an ethical point of view, telling people that they're going to Boston and that their legal case will be resolved and that they're going to be given jobs and then they find themselves on a plane to a small island in the Atlantic is is, um, misleading at best and certainly nefarious. I would question whether it's also legal. Representative Sabadosa, you mentioned to us that if there were... uh, busload or busloads of persons to arrive in uh, our communities, that this would necessarily be treated as a kind of emergency and necessity for emergency response, for emergency housing, uh, and, of course, all the basic necessities of life. What about yesterday's communications uh, informed you with regard to what needs to be done in terms of Uh, planning for uh, this kind of an eventuality? Oh, um, (laughs) that's a big big question. So I think, you know, first of all, it is is challenging for us to to find immediate housing for, we we know this for any number of people, certainly already have people who are unhoused in our community for whom it is challenging to find housing. To put up housing for potentially 150, 300 people is, is probably the first challenge um, to keep people safe. I think the second thing that really was very poignant to me was the legal needs that these people might face. I, I don't know how well it's been covered that a lot of the migrants who were sent to the vineyard um, have paperwork that they need to ch- need to share with ICE. They need to do check-ins. Some of those people had to do check-ins in other states. Um, they had no intention of coming to Massachusetts. The delay and the lack of communication with ICE could potentially lead to deportation. So getting them in a good legal position, most of them were parolees, so they were people who were allowed into the United States while awaiting a decision about their, their request for asylum, um, puts them in, in sort of precarious legal footing. And so I think that was the second thing. And then the third that is poignant to me, and it, it's probably because of the work that I did for many years was just um, the lack of linguistic support that we would have in the community. Um, everyone who came to the vineyard does not speak English, just right right down to the person. And so the linguistic support, whether it's getting documents translated, um, having people there to help do the initial immigration assessment, to do a medical assessment, to figure out where people actually want to go and what their intents were, to make sure that they understand um, what food is being given and where they're supposed to go, that's that's pretty constant interpretation. And I don't think the Valley is normally ready to meet that kind of need. Um, we certainly have some resources in place, but pulling them together and figuring out how we can best respond is challenging. It's also challenging because you never know uh, where the people on the bus or on the plane have come from. In Martha's Vineyard, it was from Venezuela, and so we know Spanish, but if it were from another country where there are where there are dialects, where there are different cultural competencies that would be required, it, it, it poses an enormous an enormous challenge. And I've seen through the pandemic, the state has often grappled with trying to make sure that we offer appropriate linguistic support. And um, this would be yet another enormous challenge to overcome. 
we should note that Representative Sabados just used the word parole, which in the immigration context has nothing to do with parole as we think about it in the criminal justice context, someone uh, being released from an institution and being uh, on uh, parole, that is some kind of supervised re- release in the immigration context. This is someone who has the uh, ability, the right and to uh, be free pending a uh, uh, and to uh, have their rights, uh, all their rights, while they are uh, uh, waiting their immigration hearing, it doesn't indicate in any way whatsoever that anyone has done anything wrong. So, uh, Representative Sabadosa, anything else you want to add to this conversation? We turn we turn into to another topic, which is of interest, I, I think, to people in Massachusetts. Yes. No. The only thing that I, I do want to add is, you know, we had. Numerous people reach out yesterday and say, how can I help? What's going on? So for the, the situation in the Valley, again, we, we don't know what's happening. We will keep people posted. We believe that those calls were a hoax, but we do have a plan in place for anything to change. What we do know, though, is that there are migrants on the vineyard right now, and the vineyard is working hard to, to make sure that people are protected. So um, I'm going to give a huge shout-out to my friend and colleague, Dylan Fernandez. Um, if anyone has read any articles, he's probably been quoted. He's doing a fabulous job on social media, sharing pictures and stories of, uh, of the people who have arrived. He's posted numerous resources. If people want to donate, they are looking for help and assistance. Um, so I would flag that for anyone who is concerned and wants to lend a hand. The Vineyard is looking for help, and th- those are the people that are dealing with the situation, not in the hypothetical, but in reality, every moment for the last, I think, 48 hours. We appreciate that. We are speaking with State Representative Lindsay Sabadoza, the representative from the 1st Hampshire District. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I have the question for the representative. $3 billion coming back to Massachusetts taxpayers. What's the story? We'll be right back. We get the job done. Look how far this I is Bill Newman, WHM. Look how far I come. Look how far I come. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New New Bedford or Fall River. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. A Jack Daniels whiskey barrel pen and pencil set. A hand-painted holiday cheese platter. The Old Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival. This weekend, furniture, paintings, jewelry, clothing, quilting. Buy direct from the makers and artists. Stained glass and pottery. Dolls, toys, and teddy bears. Plus, an exhibit of the Deerfield Arts and Crafts movement of the early 1900s. The Old Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival. This Saturday and Sunday in Old Deerfield. Sign up for Will Bike for Food, the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts annual cycling fundraiser presented by Stop and Shop. Every dollar raised provides four meals for those at risk of hunger. Ride 10, 25, 50, or even 100 miles on Sunday, September 25th, or ride your own miles on your own time throughout September. Registration is just 40 bucks and includes a t-shirt and an all-access pass to the C.E. Floyd after party with food, drinks, live music, and more. Sign up or donate to a team or individual at willbikeforfood.org. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. We're now a mile and a half above the Greenfield drinking supply. There is a uh, dump that's been up here probably for many decades. So we're interested in drawing attention to this because as I said, it is a source of the Greenfield drinking supply. So this is the Whetstone Brook. It's one of the tributaries to the Connecticut River. It flows up from the hills at like Hogback and Marlborough down east until it meets the Connecticut River right in the middle of downtown Brattleboro. It's pretty heavily impacted when it gets into town here. 
here because it's an urban river. Like all of our waterways, it deserves our care and attention. The Connecticut River Conservancy's Source to Sea cleanup is September 23rd and 24th. It's Monty. You can join me on the 24th for the Green River portion of the cleanup or find a cleanup near you by going to ctriver.org. The Northampton Radio Group's support of the Source to Sea cleanup is made possible by UMass Five College Credit Union and USA Waste and Recycling. Join the Source to Sea cleanup. Sign up at ctriver.org. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative from the 1st Hampshire District. Representative, I would like to turn to a story in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette. The headline is Auditor OK's Return of $3 billion to Taxpayers. I would like to read two sentences and then have you explain them to us because, well, I at least find them confusing. This is from the State House. uh, the State House News Service. Lawmakers moved closer to reviving a stalled economic development bill that they shelved two and a half months ago. The reason for this is that Auditor Suzanne Bump on Thursday certified that Massachusetts must return nearly $3 billion to taxpayers. The months long Beacon Hill kerfuffle over tax relief and economic development lurched into a new phase with publication of Bump's report. That report confirmed the Baker administration's projection that surging state tax revenues blew about $2.94, almost $3 billion, past the amount allowed under a 1986 voter-approved law. One more sentence from the middle of the story. Legislative leaders signaled Thursday that they will work to pluck some form of the $4 billion economic development and tax relief bill from limbo and advanced a $1.6 billion fiscal year 2022 closeout budget that sets aside money for the Chapter 62F relief. Could you translate all that into English for me, please? I like kerfuffle. That's some good language I like that they used yes. in there, too. I like that, too. <laughs> kerfuffle is indeed an excellent word choice. <laughs> um, so, yes. All right, let's see how I can uh, break this down. So I think we, we've, um, we've talked about this before on the program, but the Economic Development Bill, which is a, an enormous bill that includes lots of projects for communities, so funding for that, funding for hospitals, funding for pay raises for uh, our folks over at UMass, um, funding for, for schools, just about everything you could think of, anything that would stimulate the economy post-COVID is included in this economic development bill, as well as tax breaks. Um, and so we were all ready to pass this bill. It had, in fact, passed the House. It had passed the Senate. And we were waiting for the conference committee report, so that reconciled bill that both the House and the Senate need to vote on in order to send it to the governor. And before we could do that, the governor said, and by the way, I think you're going to need to return $3 billion to taxpayers because of this 1986 law, which was a surprise to many people because there is not enough money to do the economic development bond bill as it was written, return $3 billion, put money in the stabilization fund and not send the state into bankruptcy. So we had to pause with the economic development bond bill. But the governor's estimate of $3 billion was not confirmed. And so we have been waiting uh, up for the auditor's report, quite honestly, um, to really confirm what the amount is and how much we need to send back. Because you can only pass legislation if you have real numbers. We, we can't estimate. We need to know what the costs are. So we had an initial report from the Department of Revenue that the auditor then went through, confirmed, and now we have actual numbers. So what this means is that we will be working to pass some form of the economic development bill. Now, I don't think any of us have a clear answer yet as to what that will look like exactly. Obviously, we can't pass the same $4 billion bill because now we have to send $3 billion back to taxpayers. But some form of that will come out. The money will be returned as required by law to, to taxpayers. And you'll see, I think, all of that moving you know, in the next few weeks. Which, which will be exciting because our, our communities have, have been waiting for those dollars. Representative Sabadosa, I, I guess I should just confess ignorance. I had no idea 
about this 1986 law. Can you help me understand what it says, at least in basics? I can say that the the law was passed in so that if we hit a certain percentage of um, of revenue over the amount of the state budget, then we would have to return some of those dollars to taxpayers. So it was a way of people saying the state budget can't just keep growing and growing. We need to to limit it in some way. We don't just want you know revenue pouring in and the state spending it. Now I'm I'm going to say this is what they were thinking in 1986, but this is not how I think we should be doing things. But this is the law that passed. It was a ballot measure, um, and you know it was a way to try to limit limit taxation in the state. Um, I would argue that the way this money is going to go back is it, it's going to go back to anyone who uh, who filed taxes. It's going to go be very across the board. Again, I don't have the exact figure. Um, of how much people will be getting, um, but it's going to be a few hundred dollars. So no one should expect they're, that they're going to open their bank account and, or they're going to open the mail and see a check from the Department of Revenue for $3 billion. That's, that's not even close. Um, it, it may be a, you know, a few hundred dollars at most, depending on whether you filed taxes and if you paid taxes in the last fiscal year. And no one has looked at this bill for, what, it 36 years? I think since 1987, actually. Um, so, so no, no one has done that. And in fact, I, you know, I think that the Department of Revenue was under the impression that we weren't going to ever trigger it again. And they were working on, on removing regulations around this when all of a sudden uh, the bill was, the, the law was triggered. And so, so here we are uh, returning money. And I think that we can, you know, really safely say the economic development bill had included uh, direct payment checks that were going to go out. Given that this law has been triggered, I, I imagine those will no longer be going out. This will replace those. I'm hopeful that we will still be able to do some of the tax breaks that we were looking at in the economic development bill because those were very progressive and very targeted. So we were really trying to help um, senior citizens on a fixed income and people with, with children and you know, families. But um, I'm not sure what the possibilities will be uh, because the voters of Massachusetts in 1986 said that they would rather us just send money back um, rather than doing it in a progressive way. So so un- unless that law is changed in the future, we are, we are stuck. And for this tax period, we will be sending that money back. Well, one last question about that. It seems to me utterly illogical to have a system where if the revenues from taxes come in at a higher uh, higher amount, then the state has to return it. But if revenues come in at a lower amount than what the state has projected, then we have to cut programs. We have to reduce what the state is spending. There's just no logical equilibrium there. Uh, I fully agree with you. And I will share also that since I was five, I did not vote for this in 1986, <laughs> but I also wouldn't go for it today. So, um, you know, I, I think that we do need to take a look at it because we, we know like costs are going up for everything. Every single one of our communities is trying to build something right now, and they're struggling with rising costs. And when the state is required to just send back checks, irrespective of whether a family needs a check or not, or it's actually benefiting anyone, you know, those dollars are, are spent in an, in a way that doesn't really benefit the greatest number of people. That's the beauty of taxes. When we pay taxes, we're able to leverage that money in a way that we couldn't if it was just one individual. So I agree that there is a, a change needed, but unfortunately, uh, in this case, we, we do have to respect what the voters said. We leave it there. We've been speaking with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative from the 1st Hampshire District. She is with us every month. Representative, we really appreciate your time, your insight, your representation. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Massachusetts taxpayers could receive up to $3 billion back from the government thanks to an obscure law passed in the 1980s. A tax cap law known as Chapter 62F requires the state return a portion of taxes collected If revenues exceed a certain amount in the fiscal year, that threshold, which is tied to annual wage and salary growth, 
was nearly $38.9 billion in 2022, according to state auditor Suzanne Bump. And Massachusetts' overall state tax revenues totaled more than $41.8 billion this fiscal year. It's unclear whether the returns will come in the form of tax rebates, tax credits, or direct payments. A fundraiser for an Amherst gas station that protested high fuel prices this summer has now surpassed its goal. A GoFundMe campaign has raised more than $65,000 to help rent, sales, and service on North Pleasant Street in Amherst stave off foreclosure. The Amherst gas station briefly stopped selling fuel this summer to protest skyrocketing gas prices. When he did not sell gas for seven days straight, the owner, Reynold Wren Gladu, effectively broke his contract with the supplier, requiring him to pay off the business's remaining debt himself. Donors on the GoFundMe page praised Gladu for his integrity and described the gas station as an Amherst institution. For WHMP News, I'm Stefan Ward-Wheaton. And the Biggie is expecting full capacity crowds as it kicked off a 17-day run today. The fair has a variety of new restaurants, rides, and activities. Last year, the Biggie welcomed more than one and a half million people. Partly to mostly sunny today after a chilly start, a high of 68 to 72 this afternoon, dry this evening, eventually an overnight low of 44 to 50. Partly to mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 72 to 76. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Un juez federal nombró el jueves a un veterano jurista de Nueva York para que se desempeñe como árbitro independiente y revise los registros, incluidos documentos altamente clasificados que fueron incautados durante una búsqueda del FBI en la casa del expresidente Donald Trump en Florida el mes pasado. La jueza de distrito de Estados Unidos, Aileen Cannon, autorizó al maestro especial recién nombrado Raymond Deary a revisar el tramo completo de registros tomados en la búsqueda de Mar-a-Lago el 8 de agosto, a pesar de que el Departamento de Justicia había dicho que el árbitro no debería tener acceso a los aproximadamente 100 documentos marcados como clasificados. En una orden redactada con dureza, Cannon también rechazó una solicitud del Departamento de Justicia de reanudar el uso de los registros clasificados incautados en su investigación criminal en curso sobre la presencia de documentos de alto secreto en la propiedad de Florida. Cannon ordenó al departamento la semana pasada que hiciera una pausa en la revisión de los registros clasificados hasta una nueva orden judicial o un informe del maestro especial. Cannon ordenó al maestro especial que primero revisara los documentos marcados como clasificados y luego considerara los ajustes rápidos a las órdenes de la corte según sea necesario. Ella fijó como fecha límite el 23 de noviembre para que el maestro especial completara el trabajo. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden pidió a los estadounidenses que hablaran en contra del racismo y el extremismo durante una cumbre en la Casa Blanca el jueves y dijo que le pediría al Congreso que haga más para responsabilizar a las empresas de redes sociales por difundir el odio. Pido al Congreso que elimine la inmunidad especial para las empresas de redes sociales e imponga requisitos de transparencia mucho más estrictos para todas ellas, dijo Biden. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our weekly time with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, who has with him and us today two very special guests. Max. Thank you, Bill. Yes, good morning. Um, we have here today with us two professors from Salem State University, one of our 29 public campuses, Joanna Gonzalez and Rich Levy, and they are the authors, along with others, of a new report, which I think people will find quite revealing. In fact, it is called the Campus Debt Reveal 2022. Good morning, Rich and Joanna. Hi. Good morning, Max. Good morning, Bill. It's great to be here. Great to see you. Um, so you have this new report called the Campus Debt Reveal. Please let us know exactly what kind of campus debt you are talking about. Rich, please tell us, <laughs> what do you, is this student debt we're talking about? Because no, we hear a lot about is, student debt, so. What it is, is what we've called the invisible debt. Um, as a result of long-term defunding of public higher education, colleges have been forced to borrow money 
for buildings and uh, similar projects, mainly for buildings. Those debts are astronomical. UMass owes $3 billion. The state um, universities owe $1.2 billion. And what's important about that is those loans are then passed on as increased student fees so that students end up paying these loans and they tend to increase student loan debt by about 25% so that an average student in Massachusetts is paying about $2,500 a year just for this capital debt. $2,500 so, a year. Okay, go ahead, Joanna, explain that further. Yeah, so two years ago during the pandemic, Salem State and, and all the other public campuses in Massachusetts were faced with real dilemmas because they were not receiving the student revenues based on what are called auxiliary services, you know, um, dining, students living in dorms. And so what was happening is that the campuses no longer had the funds to pay the debts they owed from all the borrowing. And as a result, there were these conversations taking place by our boards of trustees all around the state about how we were, need to go on you know, five weeks of furloughs. We needed to uh, basically fire faculty and staff and other real draconian measures because we didn't have the money to pay our debts. So during the pandemic, we realized that the system is built on the assumption that student fees, these are for capital debt projects, um, really balance the budget. And without that, we can't afford to pay our operational budgets. So we're talking with Joanna Gonzalez and Rich Levy, professors at Salem State University and their new report, the Campus Debt Reveal. You know, I just feel like we should go back for one second. Let's go back 30 or 40 years. How were buildings on our campuses paid for? Give us an example of like how a, you choose a building on your campus or, or make one up. But how All would right. that have been um, paid so, for? Max, I'm going to go back to the beginning of Salem State. When it was founded as a normal school, they built uh, the building, the Commonwealth built the buildings and the dormitories for the students who were living there all at no cost to the students. When was Flash that, forward. Joanna? Roughly, when was that? Oh boy, that's mid 1800s. So then after World War II, um, there was as a result of uh, new federal programs uh, to create land grant campuses and uh, for student loans, that as well as Pell Grants, a lot of students around the Commonwealth started attending college and there was a, a, a flurry of building. And at that time, the Commonwealth made a decision to um, stop borrowing for buildings um, and not the state paying for those dorms, but the individual campuses through student fees. And so an example at Salem State is uh, 20 years ago, we were able to build a new library and learning commons and actually under Governor Deval Patrick, most of that was actually paid for by the taxpayers in the Commonwealth. It's a wonderful facility um, and whatever wasn't paid for and it was less than 5%, um, there was some borrowing. But more recently, the borrowing has gotten absurd where now the state is only paying for about a third of the buildings and then the campuses through student fees are paying about 70%. So now let me ask a question of you, Rich, which is that we've talked a lot and your report really shows how capital debt, the, the debt taken out by campuses, ends up on the backs of students. And you mentioned about an average of $2,500 a year of, of tuition is, that goes into student debt. But there's an impact also on the quality of the institution, the kind of programs and the kind of people you're able to hire. How does that work? What does it? How does capital debt hurt the campus's ability to provide high quality programs? It absolutely undermines it because the first obligation the university has is to pay the debt. There's Wait, can I just interrupt you? Isn't the first obligation yeah. to educate the students or do research or serve the community? One would think, but no. The first obligation is to pay the debt. In fact, 
there is something called an intercept clause in the state universities, which if the universities are unable to pay the debt in full, the creditors, in other words, the bondholders, have the right to intercept the state funding and use that for debt payment before it can be used for educational purposes, before it can be used for funding of faculty and staff and librarians, before it can be used for anything else. What that means is that the priority is increasing and stabilizing revenue, not providing high quality education. That translates into fewer majors, because they are evaluated in terms of so-called profitability. It results in fewer faculty. It results in fewer classes. And what that means is that students cannot get the classes that they need to graduate. So they have to come back an extra semester. So they're not only paying the extra tuition, but they're forced into additional semesters because of this. So it further increases the costs in ways that are usually not caught in the calculations. And what this is effectively doing is saying, you know, by freezing taxes at the top, we're in fact increasing taxes on students, but we call them fees and tuition. It's a transfer of wealth. So if I can um, now understand that this larger disinvestment of public higher education, which has been privatize the cost by putting on tuition and fees more and more on students and their families is compounded by the privatization of of who pays for the buildings. When the campuses have to take out loans, they then have to transfer that cost, the paying off of those, the interest and the principal of the loans onto the students and families. Okay, we have only a few minutes left, but I'd like to get to some solutions though. What are, what? how can we reverse this or how can we solve this problem so we don't continually undermine our programs and put more student debt on our students and families. Joanna. So Max, we, we really feel like we need to address the past, current, and future of all this borrowing. So in terms of the past, um, many, you know, much of the student loans that students took out were to pay for uh, the debt payments, about a third of their loans. So Wall Street got paid twice. Right, they got it benefited from the loans that the campuses took, and then they made off on the loans the students had to take out on that. So we need debt cancellation, and certainly the ten thousand dollars of loan forgiveness that the students just received, and I mean people just received, is is a start, but it doesn't address the full amount that they took out because of this capital debt. In the future, we really need to just raise some more revenue so that we can afford to pay for the buildings on our campuses and for their upkeep and stop charging the students. And that means, and, and right, you know, one, one approach is in November, we can pass the uh, ballot initiative for the fair share amendment. And that would essentially bring in more revenue for public education and transportation. Um, and that would be wonderful. Um, but we also, in the immediate, like what can we do today is we just need to stop the paradigm that borrowing is the solution and we need to start to build into the state budgets into campus budgets capital costs and maintenance costs and not pass it on to students and i'll just add one more thing we've been talking to rich levy and joanna gonzalez professors at salem state university and their new uh, campus debt reveal report but also just echo something that Marty Meehan, the president of the UMass system, said on this show a few weeks ago, which is you could also solve some of the problem by having a one-time takeover of the existing debt. Pay it off. Have the state pay some of that off because each year the campuses and therefore the students and families are paying off this, this continued debt. All right, thank you so much both for being on, and we will share this widely, your Campus Debt Reveal Report. We've been talking to Rich Levy and Joanna Gonzalez from Salem State University. Thanks I, so much. I have one quick question, if I might, before you all go. Can we get a copy of this report, and how, where, do, where and how do we do that? We will make sure to post it on your site, and we have it on the Massachusetts Teachers Association website. Okay, great. Thank you all so very much. Really depressing, really interesting, really important. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having us on.
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This week's Shop Tuesday is Pristine Orientals. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Pristine Orientals releases gift certificates for their rug cleaning service. Pristine Orientals' chemical-free rug cleaning process leaves no odor and no residue. Your rug gets a gentle bath. It's really the only way to treat a rug. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Pristine Orientals Rug Cleaning, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. A lot of mattress stores, all they talk about is price. Sale, 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 save, 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 blah, blah, blah. I get it. No one wants to pay a dollar more than you have to. But what do you really know about mattresses? Are you an expert? I'm not. And I have a furniture store. So I at least know a little. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon Furniture. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Therapeutic the best mattress value I've ever found. And believe me, I've looked around. Therapeutic mattresses are made in Brockton. I've walked the floor and it was reassuring because there's no toxicity, no off-gassing. Therapeutic mattresses are clean and made by fellow Red Sox fans. Play the sale, sale, sale game if you want. That's not for me. A therapeutic mattress from Talent Furniture is your best bet and best deal. Today, tomorrow, or whenever you decide to buy a new mattress. I am Marco, and I am always been full of life, full of energy, and always on the go. At the age of 21, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. My life was saved by an organ donor. Receiving a life-saving organ put my life back into play, and I was able to move forward and make my dreams come true. Anyone can sign up to be an organ donor, whether you're 16 or 96. Be a hero. Be an organ donor. Register today. Register at registerme.org. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sauteed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sauteed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. Hey, are you coming to the Doozy Do Parade? The what? The Doozy Do Parade. There'll be teams of marchers, all with their own theme, as well as bands, floats, antique cars, roller derby, you name it. It's a fundraiser for Northampton Neighbors, which provides free services for seniors living in the area. Sounds like fun. When is it? Saturday, September 17th, rain or shine. They'll step off from Northampton Center for the Arts at 11 a.m. and march up Main Street to the Academy of Music. Anyone can join a team or donate at doozydo.org. See you there. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The beat goes on. And this is Art Beat with Donna Bell Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest, Donna Bell. Our segment host, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. You know, Florence Night Out is only eight days away. It's happening on Saturday, September 24th from 4 to 7 p.m. in downtown Florence. And local filmmaker Vic Rawlings and used to be local <laughs> Jeff Silva will be screening their film Line Fork at Bombeck Center for Arts and Equity during the festival. And today we are joined by Jeff Silva. Welcome. Thank you, Donna Bell. It's great to be here. I'm sorry I can't uh, be there present at the, at the screening uh, next week, but I'm sure it's going to be a great time. Oh my goodness. We are so looking forward to it. Now, Jeff, you co-directed this film with Vic Rawlings. Please tell us about yourself and how you and Vic connected on this project. Well, I'm, um, I studied cinema and photography at Ithaca College way back in the early 90s. And so I've been making films for quite a while. Um, and then uh, moved back to Boston the end of the 90s and Vic and I uh, ran across each other in the music and art scene mm -hmm. and we became very close friends and started collaborating on different kinds of activities um, live music shows with projections other he did sound for some of my uh, previous experimental films and so we we maintained this friendship over more than 20 years now and um, 
And one day he came up to me and he said, hey, you know, I went down to Kentucky and I met this amazing guy. And I want you to listen to some of these tunes and listen to some of the recordings that I made and look at some photos. And he kind of got me hooked. Uh, hmm. And we were like, well, let's do something. Wow. I mean, I, I read a little bit about the bio of, of the film and supposedly it is inspired by the film American or Mountain Music of Kentucky, which was uh, filmed in 1959. Now your film Line Fork follows a couple from Eastern Kentucky. What is their story and what sparked your interest in their lives? Yeah, well, on um, the Mountain Music of Kentucky is actually a, an old uh, LP record. Oh. Was recorded <laughs> by John Cohen. And it's not a film at all. And the last living uh, person uh, at the time of filming the Line Fork uh, from that record was, was Lee Sexton. So that was kind of the motivation for how we would, um, yeah, we would try to preserve somehow the legacy of this man and this kind of um, style of Appalachian old time music. Mm. And so the, uh, so that was definitely an inspiration, listening to that, uh, the other tracks on that stuff. And Lee, uh, Vic went down to Kentucky specifically to see if he could try to meet some of the people from the, al from the album. And he, mm. uh, he was the first, Vic was really the pioneer, the motor of the project. And he, uh, he was able to find Lee Sexton uh, and she drove up uh, down the holler, down uh, Line Fork Creek and saw lee on the porch and the guy lee waved him in and say hey come on in and that kind nice. of started the adventure <laughs> i came in a little bit later but <laughs> wow that's a, such an amazing journey uh so the story is about lee and his wife opal sexton and yeah. you follow them over a period of three years now yeah. as i you know, could you describe his music for us? Well, it's, um, Vic likes to say it has a, it's, it's kind of old time music with a punk rock aesthetic. Uh, it has a, a real kind of edgy quality to it. He plays mm -hmm. the music hard and he plays um, a particular kind of um, banjo music that is less uh, flowery than mm. the, 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 the Appalachian music that we've become accustomed to hearing on the radio these days. Mm. And so it, um, it has a little bit more of an edge to it and it, um, it has a lot of energy and mm. he sings and he also plays quite hard. And, um, and, uh, and so that it sort of also speaks to the landscape, um, the sonic landscape of the place there, which has different kinds of tonalities. And uh, there's beautiful, soft aspects of the, the sound landscape. And then there's roosters crowing and there's all kinds of, you know, you're in the, the, the hills. And so you've got different kinds of sounds and echoes. And the music mm -hmm. kind of sounds like the place in a way. Wow, that's such a rich description. It makes you really want to look them up and listen to the music. Now, in Line Fork, you capture what someone called little daily miracles. Can you expand upon that? Well, <laughs> it's nice that they said that. I, um, I think that what my background, I also have a background in anthropology and, um, and audiovisual ethnography. And so I'm really interested in looking at small things, little things, overlooked things, things that are invisible or you know, kind of off in the shadows. And also looking at the sort of quotidian, the, the finding poetry in the, the kind of banality of the everyday. And mm. so by filming their everyday, um, by, by being with them, by making this film really with them, we, um, we, we shared in collective experiences together and we wanted to really share that with the, the viewer of these sort of moments that, that are these little interstitial moments. There's not the huge big events, uh, life events that happen in the film. It's, uh, it's the small things as this mm. person says. 
Now, you filmed them, Lee and Opal, over three years. What memory of that experience lingers the longest for you? <laughs> wow. Uh, so many of them, so many of them. I would have to say, you know, there's nothing that replaces the sort of first days of shooting, first days of being there and being inside their, their living room and having this warm welcome and, and walking through the, the garden and Lee telling stories and jokes and kind of trying to trick us a little bit. He was a very playful guy. Um, <laughs> and I think that uh, f being out in the garden, filming him, uh, and he's you know an old man at that time. I think he was 88 when we started filming. So uh, observing him with his dexterity uh, at that age, you know, riding the tractor, going through the fields, doing that, and then and and being at peace on the porch, and then just grabbing a banjo and like a switch of energy that just is like wow, like a lightning strike that comes through. And that first mm. time when I saw that, I was like, wow, it's amazing. Mm. It's almost like he just holds on to the thing and just captures that energy through his mm. body and this in the sounds. Now, if you want to see. Jeff Silva and Vic Rawlings film Line Fork. It'll be screening at Bombeck Center for Arts and Equity two times during the, during the festival between 4 to 7 p.m. on Saturday, September 24th. Uh, if you want more information of the schedule, you can go to florencenightout.org for more details. This sounds like a gorgeous film, Jeff. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Now, since then, Lee has uh, has has passed away so this is sort of a, a documentary after the fact but it's it sounds like a beautiful film I, I really thank you for joining us and sharing your film with us today thank you so much donna bell and uh, thanks so much for for spreading the word and for for sharing our film with the public absolutely and i also want to thank florence night out sponsors flooring hearing health mbs advisors murdoch's jewelry store and northampton implant and family dentistry Thank you so much. Jeff Silva, Donna Belcasas, thank you both so very, very much. from Chile, from the winery Bouchon, and it's called Pays Salvaje. It's got like a guy on a ladder in the front. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. The ladder is representing how they harvest this wine. So Pais, uh, sometimes referred to as the mission grape because it was planted all over Central and South America by Spanish missionaries. Additionally, it mutated into like a climbing vine, so it climbs up the trees on the backside of the vineyards, ah. uh, and they needed ladders that were up to 15 feet tall to harvest it. The País Salvaje, people who like natural wines or low intervention wines, like they do nothing to these things. They're just grown in the backyard um, and they use these giant ladders to, to get yeah, An interesting experience that you probably haven't had with these wild grapes grown tall. If you're in a rut, if uh, you've only been drinking Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Grigio, maybe we've made you branch out. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10.